my wife was, she was given six months to live the week before Christmas. And I lost my job on the same day. And I had a one-year-old, did not know how I was going to make ends meet, let alone what I was going to do with the one-year-old with my wife. And I had to be the one to tell her. There's a horrible rainstorm. It's one of those scenes out of a movie. I, I lose all my strength that's pouring down rain and just sit in the mud by my car and start crying. For lots and lots and lots of praying. Boy, that was when I, like, the Bible says, pray without ceasing. I was praying without ceasing. Welcome to Ye Gods. I'm Scott Carter. My guest today is Eric Erickson, who I met in 2017 when he appeared on HBO's Real Time, which I then produced. Eric's been a practicing attorney, a contributor on CNN and Fox, and now is the top-rated conservative talk show host in Southeastern America. Oh, and by the way, he's also pursuing a Master of Divinity degree at Reformed Theological Seminary. Our friendly relationship is built, I think, on a trust and respect. So whatever disagreements we have, and there are a lot, they never blow up into name-calling or finger-pointing. So, dear listener, whether you're closer to Eric's opinion or mine, may you all enjoy. Eric Erickson, welcome to Ye Gods. I am glad to have you here. Thank you for having me. You and I have known each other for a few years now, and you are one of the people who I don't agree with everything that you think politically. We, we probably have as many disagreements as agreements. But you are one of the people who I so respect because you are respectful to others who see things differently than, than, than you do. And the purpose of this show, one of the purposes is to find out how people came to whatever faith or code of conduct they have uh, to find out how they got there and how that faith that could be religion, could be some other code, how it works for them in this life. So I know that you were born in Louisiana, but right. from the age of five to 15, you lived in Dubai. What was that like? It was different. It was unique. I realized that now for me, it was just the way we grew up. We would go to Dubai and we'd come home during the summer, June, July, and August, go back, spend a couple of weeks getting readjusted to the time change, and then go through school. And every couple of months, we would go to a different country for a week because our visas had to renew. And it's just, it's what people did. You, you packed up every few months and you went to a country for a week and you've still been to more countries than States. It was eye opening in that you got a sense of how the rest of the world saw the United States. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, a terrorist group tried to blow up our school. We were out of school for days on end and we would come back to school and there would be a guard who would open your lunch bag to see what was in it and spread apart the I didn't have sandwiches anymore because he literally opened up the pieces of bread to see if there were plastic explosives or something. It was just a surreal way to grow up. And when you say that you got a sense of how the rest of the world saw the U.S., what was the message that you got? In the Middle East in particular, most people really expected, required, needed an American presence in the Middle East. My dad actually found out that the Fifth Fleet at the time, which was stationed in Bahrain, but in the 80s, there were no dry docks there. They would come into the dry docks in Dubai. And my dad decided to start organizing block parties for the enlisted on the ships. And I'd sometimes wake up and there would be 10, 12 soldiers asleep on the floor in the house or sailors who just couldn't get back to the ship in time before the port closed and would just hang out. And it, it was growing up entertaining sailors at our home, supporting the ships. 
And was your family, were they as strong, were your parents as strongly Christian as you are now? I, growing up, we'd go home during the summer to rural, very rural Louisiana, towns without stoplights. They're so small. And we'd always go to church on Sunday with my grandmother at the Baptist church. And in Dubai, we didn't necessarily go to church. If you went to church, it was at night on Sunday somewhere, and you had to be very discreet. Like when we came into the country, we would have to carry our Bibles in our hand. In Saudi Arabia, you couldn't get in at all with a Bible. In Dubai, as long as you carried it in your hand, you could get into the country. But if it was in your suitcase, it probably wasn't going to be there after you got through customs. So we didn't do a lot with church there. It, it, it's not so much that my parents weren't faithful Christians. It's we just It wasn't on the table. And we didn't regularly exercise our faith at home other than saying the prayer before supper and then bedtime prayers. Did you ever have a period of rebellion against religion? No, I was actually, I I was always the good kid. My my sisters would laugh at me saying this, but I, I was never rebellious. There were certainly times where it was out of mind, out of sight and out of mind, where I wasn't rebelling. I just wasn't thinking about it. It just wasn't at the forefront of my life. It didn't define me. It made no difference to me. It, it's. I wouldn't say I wasn't a believer, but I certainly behaved in such a way that I. you would be deluded into thinking I was a Christian based on my behavior. And you never went through a period of open skepticism or cynicism about religion. It also sounds like you, because of this upbringing, that you grew up for a non-military family. Your father was a private contractor, right? Mm-hmm. But but if you grew up with sailors or soldiers being over at the house on a regular basis, you would have had perhaps an orientation to the military being a good thing, which for, there was a time where I was growing up, I'm older than you are, but where there's distrust of the military right. coming out of Vietnam. And it, it, did you have the opposite where you had a sense of seeing it from the point of view of the military? Yeah, to a degree, yes. In fact, I've got on my desk a round of shells the USS R.K. Turner came into Dubai shortly after having bombed Libya in 19, I think 86, 85 or 86 when Reagan ordered them to bomb Libya. And I've got some of the shells that were fired uh, from that ship on my desk. One of my best friends growing up, his house was the one that got bombed in Libya next door to Gaddafi's house. And yeah, we totally grew up patriotic. The military does good. My oldest sister actually wound up trying to join the Navy and married her recruiter instead. So we were always had sailors at the house. My dad working on an oil platform, uh, the Navy saved his life. There was one in particular encounter. When I was in ninth grade, our school was two blocks from the beach, a multi-story building. You could see out in the Persian Gulf, you could see the explosions going off as Iran decided to blow up American oil platforms. And it was the U.S. Navy that protected my dad and, and evacuated him from his platform. And uh, we, I mean, he might not have been alive, but for the U.S. Navy. My father was in the Pacific for four and a half years in World War II. I I was one of five siblings, four boys, and we were very rebellious. And one of my regrets is not asking him more about his service time and honoring it more. Mm-hmm. That he, like a lot of others, was born in rural Iowa, grew up in Nebraska, and to be all of a sudden in the middle of the Pacific on a destroyer was an incredible thing. And I think that informed my father's almost Melvillian sense of religion, that he had this notion of, from spending all this time at sea, just the gravity of nature Mm -hmm. and the power of nature. And that 
had a lot to do with his notion of God. And I remember one thing he would say to us, which would cause us to roll our eyes as rebellious teenagers was, no matter what you think now, there will be some point in your life when you will be grateful to get down on your knees and pray. Mm -hmm. And many, many years, I was that person and regretted that I had not been more respectful of my father when he was telling me that when I was in my Fitzgerald's phrase, younger and more impressionable years. Right. Yeah. You know, it, it really, I mean, your parents convey stuff. My grandmother, I think, was probably more influential than faith than my parents were for a time. I remember it really probably my first memory of anything religious was sitting in my grandmother's lap and she would read me from the golden book. I, in fact, I've got a copy of it somewhere, the golden book Bible stories. Daniel in the lion's den was the first story I have memory of, and it's still my favorite in the Bible. And, and to some degree, there are times I call back to it and I was like, yeah, I feel like that right now. But I, I know with your father, you mentioned, you've mentioned to me how much work consumed him and how you felt that he maybe wasn't around the house as much as you would have liked him to have been, and how that's had an impact upon your commitment. Yeah, my guilt, uh, as much as my commitment. My dad, a great guy, he worked, he worked offshore in the Gulf of Mexico when I was little, and he would be home for seven days and then gone for seven days. Then we moved to Dubai, and it was the same thing. He would work uh, Tuesday to Tuesday. And then he would be home for a week. When he was home, he was absolutely exhausted, wanted nothing to do. It was basically being on the oil platform was a 24-7 job for a week. And then he would be off. And we would do some stuff. And of course, we took trips together. We spent a lot of time fishing in Malaysia together. But then we moved back to the States when I was in 10th grade. And he would be home for 28 days and gone for 28 days. And when he was home, uh, he was asleep, resting. We just, we really didn't have a relationship. Until I, I guess really my uh, junior year in high school, my mom made him take me on our road trip to look at colleges. And that's really, I think, to some degree when we started developing a, a real relationship. And then he retired after I was uh, out of college when I was in law school and I wasn't going home as much anymore. But we definitely, I think we've developed a relationship over time now that we didn't have when I was a kid. As you were becoming an adult, eventually getting married and defining a career, you said that there was a time where you kind of got away from your religion, not that you were denouncing it, right. but you were just, it wasn't as important in daily life. Was there a time where it did become more important? Yeah. So I, I never really, I, I shouldn't say that I struggled. There were points where I just wasn't living it. I wasn't mindful of it. And, and every time there are these little moments where God would shake me and say, I, I'm here. I, in fact, I remember distinctly when I was 15, I guess, we moved back to the States and my mom, I mean, we went back to rural Louisiana. We're in my grandmother's church that she has been a member of for since time immemorial. My parents have gotten married in the church and my mother is insistent that it is time for my sister and me to be baptized. And we're like, nope, we're not going to be baptized. And it finally came to a head one Sunday and my mother, who, by the way, has no memory of this conversation, my sister and I swear by it. <laughs> she repressed it, I'm sure. She's just like, nope, I'm not going to church. Now, my mother, if you had the flu, she would expect you to go to church and sit in the back of the congregation. You, you still better be at church unless you're dead. And that, to some degree, breeds resentment. Like, to this day, I, I hate to go to Sunday school. My parents, when I was little, we'd come home in the summer. They would try to force me to go to Sunday school or vacation Bible school. Hated it, didn't know anybody. I'm, I'm not an extroverted person to begin with. To this 
day I get like sweaty palms thinking about having to go to Sunday school, but I do. But my mom, this particular Sunday was like, you know what? If you're not going to walk the aisle to get baptized, I'm not going to church. For my mother to not go to church, to be perfectly fine and well and not go to church was a big deal. And my sister and I got into church and the entire sermon that Sunday was on how parents should not pressure their children to get baptized. <laughs> my sister and I looked at each other like God clearly He's paying attention to this. So we walked the aisle that Sunday and my mother was furious. We walked her there to, without her there to see it, but she got to see the baptism. I've had little moments like that. I remember when I was in college, I was struggling. I couldn't have a job at the time. Um, my freshman year at school, my parents didn't understand the cost of living in, in addition to driving 10 hours. And so I didn't have a lot of money. And this one particular Sunday, I remember I was went to church before I drove home and it was a, the tithing Sunday. And the preacher was talking about, it's not the prosperity gospel, but if you just by faith, believe God's going to take care of you. And I had 20 bucks in my pocket and my dad's gas card. So I threw my 20 bucks in the offering plate and thought I maybe God will do something. I, I literally had to drive home and pace it. My dad had a Conoco gas card. There are very few Conoco stations in the country today. There weren't a lot back then, but I could time them out to get gas and get snacks. And then I got home and my dad handed me a hundred bucks and said, don't tell your mom. And my mom handed me a hundred bucks and said, don't tell your dad. I was like, yep, this God thing is working. Why had your you and your sister been so adamant that it was so important? Yeah, this, this, it's part of our character, I guess. I don't view it as a flaw, but when anyone tells us, well, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it, you got to do it. We generally dig in our heels and say, absolutely not. We don't want to be pressured into doing stuff. It's not like we didn't want to get baptized. We just didn't want to be pressured by my mom into doing it. We wanted it to be at the right time. And of course, my mom's view was we're all natural procrastinators. We would procrastinate until it was too late, but we just, we did not want to be pressured into it. It's very much the way I respond these days to a lot of politics too. Yeah. I remember being so anti-ritual that I remember telling my mother, much to her consternation, that I said, if you were to die now, I would not go to a funeral. I do not believe in funerals. And I, I have completely gone uh, 180 on that because mm -hmm. I now think that one of that rituals are so important for helping people through the, the transitions of existence, whether that's confirmation or bar mitzvah or mm -hmm. weddings or um, funerals. I think anything where also you get a community to come and be a witness, I, I think is also something now, I do not call myself a Christian, though I often go to church. I try to be generous with both time and resources in helping to support churches. I know that one of the things I love at a couple of the different churches where I have gone in Los Angeles is that being in the congregation and watching a young couple come up with a baby and have them baptized then, and some of the responses asking the congregation to also vow their, their continuing support. And then to have the minister come down the aisle with the child, hopefully not crying, and, <laughs> and present to the group, I find that a very moving ceremony. And I have found increasingly over my life, ceremonies to have tremendous meaning and impact for me. They do. And, and honestly, I think one of the problems in American evangelicalism is we've lost our, for lack of a better term, and not to get too theological, but in ecclesiology, we... There's so many non-denominational churches where it's up to the minister. And I know so many people who have become Catholic or Orthodox in the past few years because the ceremony, the ritual, and the liturgy 
give them a sense of the divine in a way that just showing up with a rock band on a Sunday morning doesn't. Now, that's not my personality, and I, I, I don't want a rock band. I want the old school songs. But, you know, there were moments when I leaving church and, and not going to church and, and not being a part of the church. Then really in the last couple of years with COVID, not being able to go, started to really miss it. Back when, I guess in 2006 it was, I think I've told you this before, my wife was given six months to live. This is probably the moment where I was like, I got to be more focused on my faith. My wife was, she was given six months to live the week before Christmas. And I lost my job on the same day. And I had a one-year-old, did not know how I was going to make ends meet, let alone what I was going to do with the one-year-old with my wife. And I had to be the one to tell her. There's a horrible rainstorm. It's one of those scenes out of a movie. They call you down a little windowless hallway and put you in a little bitty room with a plastic plant, a Bible, and tell you your, your wife's got six months to live. And then there was a terrible wreck and a rainstorm and all the doctors were on call to go to the ER to help. And they said, well, you, you can wait for us or you can be the one to talk to your wife. And I went and did it. There's one of those things where I went, I waited for my wife to wake up from the anesthesia. Said, there's just, I don't even really remember at, a at the time what I said, but there's no easy way to say this. And they think you've got cancer and it's spread to your lungs and you've got six months to live. And she absolutely didn't believe me. And before I could do anything else, I was like, oh my God, it's 30 minutes to six. I got to go get the kid from daycare before it closes and rushed to the daycare, grab my one-year-old, get her home. I, I lose all my strength. It's pouring down rain and just sit in the mud by my car and start crying. And finally had family come and take over. So I go back to the hospital and the doctor finally came in for lots and lots and lots of praying. Boy, that was when I like Bible says, pray without ceasing. I was praying without ceasing. And the doctor came in and said that she was, had been misdiagnosed. They really didn't know what it was. They were sending it to the Mayo Clinic. But, you know, ironically, Scott, had they not done that, 10 years later, she was diagnosed with a rare genetic form of lung cancer. And had she not been misdiagnosed in 2006, they never would have found it until it was too late. And now she takes an oral chemo pill. It keeps the tumors from growing. The pill is supposed to work for two years. She's five years in. It still works. And it's things like that in my life where I'm like, you can say there are coincidences, there are accidents, there are flukes. And I'm like, nah, I'm pretty sure there's a God. I was a stand-up in New York in the late 1980s, and I've been a lifelong asthmatic, and I had a near-death experience, which put me in the hospital for about a week. And when I got out, I was like Saul on road to Damascus with scales falling from eyes and going from, there is no God, to, of course there's a God. Right. And since that time, that was the BCAD of my existence. Though I've had periods of either, I've never doubted existence of God since then. I have doubted my worthiness of receiving any grace, or I've doubted a technique of communication or feeling comfortable with a, a community like a church. Right. When I was growing up, for my parents, for my mother especially, I think the coffee and donuts were the, after the service were the real sacraments, <laughs> and that it was a lot about if she liked the minister, if my parents liked the minister, and a lot about if they liked the congregation. Right. It was more about community than it was dogma. Yeah, you know, I, I think that gets missed these days on how much of a community church is supposed to be. And if I'm really open and honest, I don't know that we spend a lot of time in our church community. We, we I've got my own friends uh, and hang out and and in 2016, I didn't support Trump for president. It became a problem even at church where it should have been my safe space. And I was getting lectured in church by members of the congregation that I was complicit in destroying the country. And for a while there, I had a hard time just 
going to church in general, seen so many people that I had thought were friends turn on me because of politics. But the preachers were always very supportive. Um, my immediate group of friends at church were always very supportive. And I wasn't going to let a, a group of sinners in church chase me away from God. Yeah. And I, because of the shows that I've produced of being kind of a political lightning rod when I show up at a church, and very often people will come at me and it becomes a busman's holiday of having to defend points of view or not, which is not the reason I'm there. The reason I'm there, often I will go by myself, sit alone. And so what I've started doing is there's a neighbor a couple blocks away from me, and every Sunday morning, people will come with 10 sack lunches that need to be presented in a certain way, and people will come by 11 o'clock, drop them on this lawn, then they'll get collected, and between six and 7,000 people every Sunday will at least have that meal. Wow, that's great. And there is something that, that provides the, the comfort that I have normally gone to church for in thinking as I'm preparing these sandwiches in the morning or I'm prepping or even I'm going to the grocery store to get items, I'm thinking about the people who are going to be receiving this. Right. And there is a process that has a sacred feel to it. And then it all ends with the dropping off on the lawn and all these people there are all smiling and also dropping off. And you know that it's going to go to something good. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a local group here in Macon, Georgia, where I am. And every Sunday morning, they get up and they make pancakes. That's all they do. Pancakes and bacon. Put them in disposable to-go trays and they walk through downtown Macon and give them to the homeless on Sunday morning. So at least they'll have a hot breakfast in the morning. And being on radio, I could be behind my microphone and pretend to be an extrovert. I am not an extrovert. I, I don't like crowds. I, even going to real time, it's just one of these deeply uncomfortable things. And oh my gosh, I'm the conservative. Everybody's going to hate me. I don't want to be in the crowd anyway. I don't like crowds. And I don't like going and participating. And I, I compel myself to participate where I can to be good. But oftentimes, I just I, I want to help fund it. I don't want to be in the crowd. Inevitably, someone ropes me into talking politics wherever I go. And, and I just, at, at some point, I guess people have lost their sense of space and boundaries and you're here to help the homeless, but let me have your dissertation on politics of the day. And I just, it, it kind of just, after a while, I was like, I think I'll just write a check. I try to ask everybody, is there any single quote that in vexing times, the words come back to you and provide to you some comfort? There are a lot, but you know, with my radio listeners, particularly in the angsty political days we live in, I, I spent a lot of time even with radio listeners in a, in a secular news talk program, uh, reminding them of Jeremiah 29, seven to seek the welfare of the community in which you live and pray for it because there you'll find your welfare. And it's a, as we have become an online citizenry and we've all developed communities of interest of people who think and look like us, and we're less and less mindful of who our next door neighbor is. It, it's a reminder to me that I can't necessarily shape politics in Washington, D.C. Or, or anything that goes on in Washington, but i got an entire community here in middle Georgia where you are your brother's keeper. The homeless man you see every day under the bridge, he really is your problem. What, what are you going to do? How are you going to engage your own community? And oftentimes I, I tell people in politics that now who feel like they're losing their country for some reason and that the country really isn't your problem. I, I was in seminary. I, I, I can break down the Hebrew there for seek the welfare of your community. It doesn't mean country and it doesn't even mean state. It means your particular city where you are. And 
So unless it's Washington, D.C., where you live, stop worrying about Washington and worry about where you live. If you could get people to expose themselves to some work of art, whether it's a book, a song, a, a movie, a play, anything that you think might be worthwhile for them, what would that be? Ironically, if I had to tell people a, a movie that everyone should see, Patton is my favorite movie. I, I love Patton. That's a, that completely surprises me, though. Yeah, my parents, when I was 10 years old, my dad had rented Patton, and I sneaked in and watched it, and it just blew my mind as a 10-year-old to watch that movie. And I, I love it. A real story of good and evil with deeply flawed people who know they're flawed, who are doing something greater than themselves and asking of people to do things that they made themselves not think they can do. It's a wonderful portrait of humanity in the worst of times, and I absolutely love that movie. It's always a delight to talk to you. Let me just thank you very much for taking this time, and I have tremendously enjoyed it. And now the sermonette I call In My Homily Opinion. This episode is being released on Memorial Day weekend when we Americans honor those who serve in our military forces and veterans living or dead, like my father, Captain John Henry Carter, who spent four and a half years in the U.S. Navy in the Pacific in World War II. Sometimes when he returned home on leave to Nebraska, he would speak at school assemblies or was interviewed on local radio. My family has vinyl records of some of those conversations, and in one, he recounted how the destroyer on which he served, the USS Dyson, hit a Japanese submarine which soon surfaced and its crew abandoned ship. And though our sailors reached out to rescue them, the Japanese sailors refused to be saved, perhaps fearing the torture to which they would subject our men were the tables reversed. So my dad and his young shipmates watched scores of Japanese seamen tread water until overtaken by fatigue. They sank, then bobbed up one last time floating in the cold blue, unyielding ocean. I can't imagine the impact such an experience had on anyone, but especially those young men like my father who hailed from Midwest farm communities with fewer residents in them than the massive warships in our Navy's fleet. And when Memorial Day comes around each year, I think not only about the sacrifice of those of his generation whose numbers dwindle each year, and I recall with regret how the magnitude of their trauma was unappreciated by me, who grew up during the Vietnam War era when servicemen, home on leave, weren't celebrated at school assemblies or interviewed on local media. My father never talked much about his time at war. And when he did, it was never expansively. Perhaps he feared that a floodgate of memories once opened wouldn't be able to be contained again. It's my annual regret that I didn't draw him out more or express more gratitude to him. What are your thoughts on days of remembrance such as this, either national or personal? Email me please at yegodspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And until next time, may we all be safe and free.